Hello, welcome to the Quest series. My name is Alan Mulhern. This is the mini-series within it, The Crisis of Our Times. So far, I have given a roadmap of the current crisis. In particular, I have described stage one, the approaching storm, which consists of the fissures in the world economy that have been developing a long time, and certainly since the 2008 great financial crash. Stage two has been the arrival of the pandemic, which has morphed into an economic crisis of the first magnitude. The global situation is that in early June 2020, we are at stage three, the policy response. Currently, the advanced countries with respect to their economies have created vast amounts of money and extended borrowing to unheard of levels. The impact is already emerging of increased and unpayable debt levels national, corporate and individual, a huge fall in government and corporate revenues, the result of the numerous lockdowns, and large contractions in output and employment. We await the bankruptcies and defaults on debt to come. There is no easy solution to these problems. Increased debt has immense danger, particularly when interest rates rise, and can end in national defaults and hyperinflation. Governments therefore are terrified of rising interest rates and attempt to keep them hovering around zero, practically nailed to the floor. But this is a fundamental distortion of the economy, destroying its essential functions of allocating resources and encouraging gross moral hazard, a term in economics by which bad practices are encouraged to continue. This is particularly the case in the banking, shadow banking and stock market sectors. Another proposed solution is debt forgiveness, but mass debt cancellations lead to bank collapse. Increased taxation, which is inevitable to compensate the falls in government revenue, provokes enormous political resentment. This list of traps is endless, but these have been magnified by the false policies and illusory debt practices that have been and are underpinning the modern economy. At some point in the future, a fundamental reform of the system and of economics will have to take place, by which sound practices for national government will have to be established, instead of the conflicting theories that exist at the moment, which lead to intense politicisation of these theories, by which the ones that are convenient for the present circumstances are those picked out. This is not simply a theoretical question, For the wrong monetary and fiscal and general economic practices of government have immense consequences for all our lives. At some point in the future podcasts, I will be outlining what these reforms, in my opinion, should consist of. Trying to find a way out of this is like stopping the car and asking the way and being told, I wouldn't start from here. The world economy and certainly Western countries have mired themselves in such a debt and low productivity trap that they can only envisage more debt or artificial money creation as the answer. There is little else in their impoverished arsenal to fight this battle. It is almost fatal to face a depression without any genuine national savings. Most countries have not only saved nothing in the boom periods, they have simply increased their debts. How did they expect to survive when the storm arrived? So many times the refrain has been heard, this time is different, this time the boom will last. The leaders of the Western world 
and many other countries have led their countries into a fatal trap because they have never been able to live within their means, never mind make genuine savings. The inescapable result of the magnitude of the false boom is a great global depression, which I believe has already started. It's possible there could be a slight postponement, but as Hamlet says, if it be now, tis not to come. If it be not to come, it will be now. If it be not now, yet it will come. The readiness is all. A great global depression is the trauma at the heart of business civilization, and will have immense repercussions. This is not just an economic event, since the dimensions of the evolving crises, or horsemen of the apocalypse, also include the political, social, military, pandemic, climatic, technological, conflict of ideas, and the spiritual dimensions. Now, nothing is fixed in the future. Predictions are not appropriate. We're dealing with probabilities. But I argue that these stages will play out in one form or another. As an example, the European Union continues in an intensely precarious state, since Spain and Italy are now demanding huge grants, not loans, of central money to bail their countries out of the present pandemic crisis. Such grants are unconstitutional in the European Union, yet they are being demanded, and key countries such as France and Germany have now agreed to raise 500 billion euros for this purpose. That's half a trillion euros. While four countries, Austria, Holland, Denmark and Sweden, are currently, as of late May 2020, opposed to giving of grants. Italy is implicitly threatening to exit the European Union unless huge grants are given freely. Spain is close behind it. Europe hangs on a thin thread. I expect it to disintegrate in the near future when these absurdities run their tragic course. It might be possible to kick the can down the road, but then an even larger crisis awaits. If you live in another part of the world, you may think Europe is not your concern. But Europe has many of the largest globally significant banks. If the European Union disintegrates, so will the euro currency. And its unreformed and immensely fragile banking system will also collapse, provoking an instant global financial tsunami far larger than that of 2008. Europe is proving incapable of reforming itself and is simply postponing and augmenting its crisis. Of course, there are predators on the outside. The chief beneficiary of a European Union collapse will be China, who will increasingly move in economically, buying up ports, islands, breakaway regions, infrastructure, bankrupt states and the like, followed secondly by Russia, who will move in militarily from the east. But like the Roman Empire, the true cause of Europe's collapse is the rot within. If the European Union cannot undergo fundamental reform, it is doomed. And there is no evidence at all it can do this. Distributing huge grants to countries that are increasingly bitter against the Union, who expect to be bailed out because their debts are already too high, that having conditions imposed on them through a loan is humiliating, who accept no responsibility for their condition, who are furious at the thought of having to further tighten their belts when what is required, they argue, is more spending to supposedly lift their economies out of recession. 
is simply postponing and magnifying the breakup to come. Imagine what a 500,000 million, half a trillion, debt will do to the European economy, where national debts stand already at an average of 86% of GDP. Public debt will soon approach 200% of GDP in Greece, 160% in Italy, 130% in Portugal, and just below 120% in France and Spain. We are told from the heights of government and the European Central Bank, that these levels are not dangerous because interest rates are so low. The parts of Europe that are productive, for example Germany, are already giving in to these pressures as they face the disintegration of the Union. The example of Japan, which has increased its debt levels to 250% of GDP without stimulating growth at all, seems to escape their notice. Hyper-Keynesian policies, huge borrowing and monetary tricks simply do not work on rigid, moribund economies and populations who are accustomed to an exaggerated lifestyle and at no cost intend to give it up. Yet this is precisely what happens in the Depression. A vast reduction of wealth will take place. Meanwhile, we wait to see the impact on those less advanced countries that have yet to experience the full force of the pandemic. That is another topic. Now, you may well have noticed something unusual about the Quest podcast series. It moves between the social sciences and metaphysics, between economics and existential philosophy, between historical analysis and Jungian psychology, between contemporary crisis and mythology, even between monetary policy and mystical thought. This wide systemic approach is possible because we live in such serious times. That which appeared separate now reveals itself to be interconnected. For example, we can see and measure the impact of climate change. We have considerable knowledge now of the history of the Earth, and we know that seas can rise and deal a fatal blow to our civilization. Our global system is best named business civilization. Business is its god no matter what the politics or religion. This is what unifies practically all societies. And this business civilization is bringing us to a terrible impasse in our development. It matters not which gender, race, colour or creed leads this process. Individual agents or groups are all cogs in this gigantic machine, which is reshaping the earth, all human societies, the human mind, and human nature. Business civilization is the current cause of climate change and all the other crises we face. Such knowledge was practically unknown until the last third of the 20th century. Before that, these disciplines of economics and ecology were separate. Now they are interlinked. Apocalypse is an ominous word. Its original meaning in Greek is revelation. Its signification in the Christian Bible is end times. The book of Revelation is, appropriately, the final book of the New Testament. I have pointed out in an earlier podcast that versions of the Apocalypse have existed in many cultures and movements in the past. Apocalyptical fantasies are gaining force in our own times, and not without reason. A civilizational eclipse or collapse of the West specifically Western Europe and America, 
which have been the main global leaders in the modern period, is now threatened. The quality of leadership in some parts of this civilization reminds me of some Roman emperors of dubious mental status. Beyond the comings and goings of individual civilizations, we have the prospects of a threat to business civilization itself, which therefore encompasses the whole of humanity. The two most acute threats are nuclear conflagration and climate change triggering rising sea levels. The world hangs by a thin thread was a phrase Carl Jung used in a 1959 interview. He continued, and that thread is the psyche of man. And so it is demonstrated in our day what the power of the psyche is, how important it is to know something about it. But, he says, we know nothing. Like a person faced with a life-threatening illness, our civilization may pause. Indeed, the pandemic has forced this upon us collectively. We may reconsider our lives, consider different perspectives. We may see that those things that drove us now no longer make sense. We may regret our mistakes and revalue that which once seemed of no value. We may realise the immense importance of love. We may consider the meaning of our lives. Why are we here at all? At such time, visions are possible concerning the fate of humanity. The possibility of life ending, be it of ourselves as individuals, our societies or civilizations, and even humanity itself, is of course horrifying. Now there is another option, which is that we learn nothing, reconsider nothing, and in our lives, revalue nothing. And simply wish to return to business as usual. Jolanda Jacobi, one of Young's best-known followers and very close to him, reported in an interview that Young, near his end in 1961, was afflicted by visions of the destruction of the earth. At one point, his daughter took notes with a sketch of a line going up and then down, and which had the following words written, The last 50 years of humanity. On another occasion, Young had a similar vision when Jolanda Jacobi visited him again near his death, and he said, I see enormous stretches devastated, enormous stretches of the earth, but thank God it's not the whole planet. Jolanda Jacobi kept this material away from publication. Humans have continually fought a life and death battle between the forces of dark and light, good and evil within themselves. My reading of history, as well as mythology, is that mankind has always been intensely conscious of its dark potential and the necessity to oppose it with the light and the spirit. The forces of destruction within human beings can easily overwhelm those of order and reason. Many myths and legends concern a primal battle between light and darkness, to underestimate the darkness in our species is naive. In the last podcast I presented a poem, Satan's Plan, which contemplated the annihilation of all life on earth. Satan is, of course, a symbol for the darkness within ourselves. Subsequently, I searched for a myth outside of the Abrahamic and Christian traditions that presented the great battle of opposites between light and dark, but contained hope 
One that particularly attracted my attention was the myth of Isis, Osiris and Seth, which is a strong candidate for the most beautiful and dramatic in the Egyptian pantheon. The story of Osiris's death at the hand of his brother Seth was retold across thousands of years of Egyptian history and had numerous versions. They all agree that in the beginning, Osiris and Isis, siblings, who were the pharaoh and his sister queen, were happy and in love, rather like a Judaic version of Adam and Eve, a primal couple united in love before the emergence of evil. Their brother Seth was malevolently jealous of Osiris. Some versions of the myth tell of a physical battle between the two brothers, at the end of which Osiris is defeated and dismembered by Seth. His body parts are then found by Isis, who brings him briefly back to life in order to impregnate her. In all versions, she subsequently gives birth to Horus, who later slays Seth and re-establishes the kingdom of peace and good rule, Mart, civilization. Osiris embodies the principle of rebirth and justice. He is god of the underworld, judge of the dead. Creative and destructive forces are the underlying structure of good and evil. Osiris and Seth are polar opposites. Moreover, the power of evil appears quite comprehensive with the brutal victory of Seth over Osiris. Malevolent envy, akin to hatred, is the preparedness to destroy that which one envies. Moreover, at least for the modern eye, there is a great deal of obvious psychology. Envy between siblings, one brother feeling excluded, the other taking centre stage. The excluded one, in his brother's shadow, grows angrier and more violent until his rage erupts. Such a story is recognisable the world over, not only in Abrahamic myths such as Cain and Abel, but also as a primary and frequent cause of dark feelings in a family. The potential for evil lies embedded in the complex emotions of the human family, where the emergent and vulnerable self is potentially distorted. By implication, the myth posits malevolent feelings of human envy in the family dynamic. However, an underlying division in human consciousness into dark and light lower and higher potentialities is evident. There is an archetypal dynamic at work. In the ancient Egyptian myth there is an answer, a feminine principle at work in the form of Isis, who rescuing the body of Osiris after his death brings him back to life and gives birth to a son who is later to re-establish civilization. The psychopathic or malevolent evil in mankind does not win out. Egyptian myths often demonstrate the influence of goddesses and therefore lean towards a different psychology to other cultures, particularly patriarchal ones such as the Abrahamic. There is a greater stress in the Egyptian on the feminine and positive component of the psyche. Egypt, although a patriarchy, is clearly more linked to the world of the Great Mother. The idea that there is a beneficent mother who cares for the world, nature, all creatures, and mankind, leaves a strong imprint on the psyche. Having found the myth, I determined to write another poem on the subject. The task of the poem is to tell the myth of Isis, 
Osiris and Seth, to present clearly the opposites in humanity. The gods are archetypal representations of aspects of ourselves. To tell the story of the rebirth that eventually leads to the overcoming of darkness and the reordering of society away from evil and towards wisdom and justice. And finally, to demonstrate the spiritual principle of love represented in Isis. The reference to the scarab beetle within the poem is an important symbol for the Egyptians since it represents rebirth. The mother beetle, you may remember, puts its eggs in dung and rolls it to a hole in the ground or a corner of a wall where they can hatch. The Egyptians likened it to the sun god, the rolling ball, and the emergence of new life, that is, the emergence of consciousness out of nature. In the next podcast, in two weeks' time, I will consider the significance of this myth for the modern world. Perhaps in the meantime, you could also give it some thought. With no more ado, here is the poem. At dawn before time's morning, when all the gods were young, Isis did Osiris love. Those siblings, they were one. They danced across the heavens. They sung among the stars. Their love flowed sweet along the Nile. It lived in trees and flowers. Osiris had a brother, Seth. Hate consumed his heart. Self-twisted fury eviled him, a monster in the dark. Two fundamental opposites these brothers represent. Seth, malevolent violence. Osiris, innocence. Exile from their precious love and in self-loathing wrapped, Seth clothed himself in darkness. Revenge his mind had trapped. Osiris, he did ambush, surprised him unaware. The hunter lay in hiding, beguiled him in a snare. Seth cruel-stormed, Osiris shocked. Across the skies they rushed. Mediterranean gasped in wonder. Saharan sands lay hushed. The Atlas boomed their clash of swords. Along the coast they raged. The thunder roared as lances crossed. A deadly fight they waged. Osiris flowed like water. Seth sharp fired as flame. Like a snake his venom pierced. His fury had no shame. Through heavens wide the battle raged. Their blood rained from the sky. This was a duel that would not end till one of them would die. A storm of battle distant dimmed at setting of the sun. Osiris lay a vanquished corpse. Cruel Seth a triumph won. With knife's keen edge and hatchet sharp, Osiris he dismembered. He cast his parts unto the wind, so not to be remembered. The one exception to this fate, the phallus he removed, and fed it to a waiting fish that lay in Nile's deep ooze. Among the Nile's dark bulrush or endless desert sand, Isis, her beloved sought. In grief, 
she searched the land. His butchered parts she gathered all, except for phallus lost. She cast death's ashes on her head, on sorrow's ocean crossed. Deep in shade of grieving night, Osiris's parts were lain. Remembered was his body, by Seth, his brother slain. Bitter tears fell on the earth. Five nights for him she wept. Despair wreaked havoc on her soul. A morning vigil kept. Strong in silence, fierce in grief, his body she embalmed. From Nubian gold, new phallus made. Her song, an ancient psalm. Of rebirth in the underworld. Of dawn that hope might stir. Sarcophagus was scented sweet with frankincense and myrrh. In depth of night she entered in the tomb she had created. Osiris to his life returned with brother then she mated. This union did a child conceive. Seth's vengeance now she feared. In terror through the delta fled, in marshlands disappeared. In desert hiding was he born, young Horus was his name. From early years he was fierce pledged, their honour to reclaim. Like a falcon shone he bright, to manhood fast grew strong. An army raised against mighty Seth, avenge his father's wrong. For many years was Egypt split, the deep south from the north, till Seth was slain by Horus, a new reign from henceforth. The line of ancient pharaohs in peace ruled through the land. The rock of civilization was now in wisdom's hand. Awareness, like a scarab, rolls, truths dung across the earth. From the darkness light does come, from death there is rebirth. Man's cruel evil has no bounds, it leads us to hell's gate. Her loving wisdom is required to save us from this fate. Sweet Isis of the night and day, you guide us birth to death. These words proclaim your wisdom. Your truth is on our breath. Great goddess of the morning, love's light across the sky. You're with all creatures when they're born. You love us when we die. The essence of this precious life, the seed upon the flower, the scent within a perfume, the light that is a star, the freedom of the wild west wind, the mist on mountain side, the thought before you think it, she knows you from inside. The sweetness of the desert breeze, you can't grasp in your hands. She's like the waters of the Nile. She comes from other lands. Thank you.